Always Dave Hamilton, the co-host. And how's it, is it going? <laughs> it's my pleasure to uh, introduce a Northeast Ohio author who is also a professional engineer, winner of the 2014 Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award, and number one Amazon bestseller. Uh, her books have been translated into eight different languages, and most of them take place in Northeast Ohio and/or the Midwest. Welcome, DM Pulley. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks for thanks for uh, coming on. This is an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to go over uh, the four books you've written, and then maybe anything you have coming up in the future. Um, but before we get started with any of the questions, uh, let's talk about what we decided to drink today. Uh, Dee, do you want to start? I know you've got something special. Yes, I have. My husband and I have recreated a cocktail that we first had in Toronto at the Delta Hotel across from where the Blue Jays play. Is that what they're called? The Blue Jays? In Toronto? Yeah. Yeah. Um, We were at this hotel visiting friends and we dropped our kids off. This was years ago. And we had this lovely, lovely autumnal cocktail. It's perfect for October. And we did not know what was in it. We bugged the bartender. My husband finally called him last year to get the ingredients. And it's a whiskey drink. It's a whiskey cocktail. We've named it the Orange Finney. Okay. Two parts whiskey, one part Benedictine, which is fabulous liqueur that was concocted by Benedictine monks when they had nothing to do but get drunk in the monastery. It's a lovely spicy mulled, like cinnamon and kind of lots of mulling spices in that. Um, an orange wedge and a little bit of mulled simple syrup. So, oh my gosh, I, I I'm writing that down. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to make that up sometime. I'm a huge yes. whiskey fan. It's so. delicious, and the name came from a fan that sent me an email gosh a couple months ago. Just sometimes fans will send me emails with interesting articles or houses I should look at, or things that piqued their interest. And this was about a gangster that died, um, I think, from the Youngstown area, and his name was Orange Finney. Oh, <laughs> so we I had- love that there's such a great story behind this. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, I, would, I, I can't top your story. I, you should have gone last, because there's no way I'm going to be able to top your story with what I'm drinking today. There's no way. You should write books. You should write books. <laughs> well, the reader thought that Orange Finney would be a great character name, but throughout the pandemic and our really awful home renovation these past couple of years, we've 
taken to having happy hours on our back deck, which was at a time the only like livable, civilized place in my entire house. And we would have happy hours and we were drinking these cocktails when the email came in and we just didn't know what to call them. And so there you go. That's how the orange. That's the best story we've had for a drink so far. So if we had an award for that, we'd add another (laughs) award to your, to your long (laughs) list of awards. (laughs) What are you drinking? Well, when I, when I get to put it together, I'll be putting mine together throughout the episode, but I plan on drinking what I refer to as a Hamilton. Uh, oh. which is, which, funny enough, I have named that after myself, but it's a drink that I started putting together at weddings uh, when I just needed something refreshing and I didn't want to get destroyed before we played. So I take just oh. gin- ginger ale and pineapple juice. And if I'm feeling frisky, a little gin or vodka, but usually just pineapple juice and, and ginger ale. And it's actually delicious on the rocks. Uh, super refreshing. And I call it a Hamilton. Well, how much ginger ale do you put on, put in compared to the pineapple juice? It's sort of like, I'd say it's 70, 30 ish. With, with, with Gin, seven, 70 ginger ale, 70 ginger ale, 30, okay. 30 pineapple juice. If you like it a little sweeter, a little more pineapple juice, but okay. it's a, it's actually just delicious and refreshing. I, I it does sound, it sounds interesting. And I, you know, they put ginger beer in so much now making these mules and everything that like yeah. you get that carbonation with the alcohol and like some type of yeah. juice. Like everybody well, dude, has it, a different mule now. Yes. But. Well, anything with ginger ale is good, too, because they say it settles your stomach a little bit. So it's like it's easy on the stomach, still a little bit sweet, throw a little alcohol in it. It's very versatile. <laughs> I like it. Excellent. Yeah. It sounds and like I'm a candy dropper. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to be extremely, <laughs> extremely boring now. And I thought I was like going to be the best one. And I went out and picked out this, this new bourbon. And it's actually from Cleveland, from a place called Cleveland Underground. Nice. And it's a bourbon whiskey. They say it's finished with sugar maple wood. And I tried to do some research on it to be like, to give some information. And I couldn't get much. There wasn't much on the internet about it. So if I find out more, I'll, in a future episode, I'll disclose whatever it is I find out, but so far, it's actually really good, and it's not overly expensive. They're calling it a bourbon. I don't know if you can technically call something a bourbon if it's from Ohio or if it has to be from, like, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. But someone would be mad region. at you for calling it a bourbon. Someone yeah, would be You angry. know that there's somebody like, no, that's just the name. It's not technically a bourbon. It's a whiskey. Da, 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 yeah. Da. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but with... With that being said, uh, let's move into the next part, which, uh, D, I kind of want to talk about just the early beginnings of of your life and, and writing career. Like, how did the, where did you go to school and, and did you grow up in the Cleveland area or if you didn't, like, when did you move here? Um, I grew up in Michigan in a small town. We like to joke that it was a suburb without a city. It was, um, I grew up in a chemical town in the middle of Michigan, surrounded by cow country and oh. two hours north of Detroit. And it was um, supposed to be, you know, the Simpsons episode where the chem- the company comes in and they move Marge and Homer to a company town and they turn like the homeless guy into a mailbox. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> But I love it. I love it. I'm going to look for it now. 
I grew up in a corporate company town where everybody, um, when I got to Cleveland and I moved to Cleveland in 94 to go to Case Western Reserve University on scholarship. But when I got here and the internet was brand new in 1994, I remember going on the Census Bureau and looking at my hometown and it came out to be 99.2% or something like that, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Like it was just yeah. a very milk toast, very homogenous town, lovely people. But I remember growing up, it was the kind of place where all of your dirty laundry was buried in the basement and everybody put a smile on everything. And mm. you find that with that Midwestern nice that, you know, I think it's been interesting in the last 20 years to hear that term come out into the site, like into the culture, <laughs> like Midwestern nice. Like, how are yeah. you doing? Fine. How are you? You know, like just the very happy, smiling. Yeah. It just, it was pleasantries. It was lots. Yes, it was a Pleasantville kind of town with lots of dirty laundry buried. And um, I grew up obsessed with authors like John Saul, who would write about peaceful, sweet little towns with terrible, murderous secrets. And it really spoke yeah. to me. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so. Um, so I came to Cleveland in 94 and it was like, to me, it was like moving to New York city. I didn't know anybody. I was super excited to be far, far away from everything I knew and to start over and in, in this much bigger city than I was used to. Oh, that is so cool. Now, when you went to case, um, what did you end up studying? Well, so I was one of those kids that didn't know what I wanted to be when I grow up. In fact, I'm still kind of in that mess myself. Um, <laughs> I did. A, I was a good student. Um, I was left brained and right brained. I got into Northwestern um, University for journalism. Um, I got into the McCormick School of Engineering. Um, so I, I, I had lots of options and lots of interests. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but Case had a very generous scholarship program at the time, and I needed scholarship money. My parents could not afford to send me to a place like Case. And oh, um, yeah. when the money came through, um, I got to Case and I figured out what the options were. Um, they did not have a journalism program. And I, as it turned out, I wasn't passionate enough about journalism to um, have that bother me. But they did have a great engineering program. So um by the time I graduated from Case with a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering, I was carrying, I think, five scholarships at the time, including one from my hometown, where the founder of the chemical company in my hometown was actually a Case graduate. So I was able to get a scholarship to pursue engineering there. Oh, and, that's great. That's yeah. amazing. And I'm actually surprised, but that's, you know, that that he, he went to Case and he was out in Michigan, but and then you were able to get that scholarship. That's just, it's just how things work out sometimes, I guess. It's cool. Yeah, no, I, I, Cleveland and I, we were supposed to be a, 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 a short-term relationship, but I got here, um, met some great people, just kind of fell in love with the town and um, never left. Yeah, it's that, it, that's it's a lot of day. people's story for Cleveland. <laughs> no one intends Cleveland's to stay like a long this time. secret <laughs> where you get all the big city feels, but it also kind of feels like a small town at the same time. Yes. It's, I've always described it like that. You get all these professional sports teams and all this great history in the buildings, and then 
but I'm not waiting in eight hour traffic jams like you do in Boston or something, you know? So, it's yeah. yeah, it really is. I think it's kind of a hidden secret that, um, you know, with the pandemic, it's been interesting to see how some folks have moved out of New York and moved out of Chicago and they're going to places like Scranton. They're going to places like Cleveland. They're going to mm-hmm. Buffalo. They're going to these smaller towns that are affordable, but still have all the amenities. Like we have a world-class art museum in Cleveland. Um, I love going there too. It is amazing. If, if orchestra it's been in a while. Exactly. We have a, yeah, the Museum of Art of Cleveland has one of the most preeminent Picasso collections in the world. It's, um, like I said, it's world-class. The orchestra is world-class and has been world-renowned for years and years. We have yeah. a lot of the, what you, which, like what you were saying, what you're looking for in a big city without some of the downsides of a big city. So um, oh, yeah. college friends of mine, like left, they moved to Vegas, they moved to Chicago, they moved around the country, and a lot of them have come back. Oh, that's interesting. It is a funny narrative, though, about Cleveland, how how people come here for all these different reasons, and they always think they're passing through. <laughs> and, and, and they're never passing through. They're always going to stay. <laughs> but they never to, think they are. <laughs> I used to call it the Bermuda Triangle of the Midwest, because you can never leave. <laughs> yes, yes. it's just people are disappearing here they're not coming back they're just staying (laughs) um so so after you graduated uh you got into engineering and that was mostly structural right and you would do like forensic investigations or or was there something before that with the engineering that you did well, I started out engineering um wanting to go to architecture school actually that was going to be the the master's degree I would pursue. And I even um, interviewed at UVA uh, for their program. And one of the professors there gave me the best bit of advice, one of the best bits of advice I've ever gotten. And he's like, before you drop six figures on an architecture master's degree, go work at an, at an architecture firm. Just go mm-hmm. do it for a while. And thank God I did. I mean, I, I ended up working at one of the preeminent um, Cleveland architecture firms right out of college. And I was there for less than a year. I hated it. <laughs> oh, there you nothing, go. Nothing to do with um, lovely people. And, uh, but, you know, in a big firm like that, you know, a, a grunt, like entry level engineer like me, I was at a desk for 10 hours a day checking shop drawings. And for those listening that are not familiar with what a shop drawing is, when you build a building or often just a gas station, Every single beam that goes into that place has a separate piece of paper associated with it, where the beam is drawn out with its exact length, the exact positioning of the bolt holes, the exact size of the bolt holes, uh, all the little details. And it was my job to check all of those sheets of paper for every stick of of metal that goes into. So how many cups of coffee did you have to have to stay awake for those 10 hours? That's that's the real question. It was a lot. Yeah. I mean, and this is, I mean, it is a lost art. And I, I, you know, you hear about stories now with young people coming into careers and being shocked. I was shocked by how menial and repetitive and mind numbing the labor was, but that really was the way you got trained. Like you mm-hmm. spend a couple of years doing that and then you get moved up to the next position. But what I found was that um, I was having carpal tunnel issues with my hands. I was having chronic headaches because of the computer screens. 
the AutoCAD drafting was hard on my body and it was hard on my spirits. Like I just wasn't enjoying it. And so I was about to quit and become a bartender when mm. a family friend came through town. Um, my surrogate uncle who used to sell silicone caulking, like to companies like window sealants and things. And he, yeah. he knew a guy in town that was starting up a small forensics firm. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> like, I don't wow. know what that is, but He's like, you should meet him. It'll be fun. So I started like meeting in secret this um, guy that became my boss uh, for a few weeks because I was really scared about leaving a job with less than a year in. Um, It seemed like a career suicide to do that. But I was really unhappy at the desk job. So I took this new position to do forensic studies and I became the Indiana Jones of engineering. I was driving backhoes. I was driving scissor lifts. I was up hanging from swing stages on the outsides of buildings. I was nice. climbing up three story ladders in the rain to do roof inspections. <laughs> it was um, a very hands-on uh, job where I would be out there diagnosing problems with buildings, designing fixes, um, doing inspections, and just being out in the real world. And I think that after five years of engineering school and um, almost a full year behind a desk, I just was desperate for anything that felt like it mattered, that it was, um, it was just, it was a really wild challenge for me. And being a young woman on a construction site um, definitely presented some interesting challenges. Um, I believe that I worked on construction sites for 11 years before I worked at the steel mill and I, I could. Well, I could and this, see this that. was probably this was probably before men were all well behaved like we are now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. One of my internships in college, they actually had a company function at the Crazy Horse Saloon, um, where it was like <laughs> a company yeah. function. That's for the yeah. end. <laughs> yeah. So when no, I, people, team building exercises. Right. Like, let's all go see strippers together. It'll be fun. Yeah. So, you know, they also had ladies bringing cookie day. Um, uh, did because, Michael Scott plan any of this? <laughs> this was back in the nineties, you know, and um, gosh, it's so funny to say that like that's ages ago, but I guess it is. Um, I hate saying that because it is over 30 years ago. Yeah. It's it's crazy. It doesn't seem possible. I haven't aged a day, but apparently that was a long time ago. And, Uh, um, so I was one of the very few female engineers doing, uh, this work in the construction trades. And there were a lot of challenges. They, I mean, as if you've worked construction, you're familiar with how they feel about college punks to begin with. And then you had a pair of tits on top of that. And it's like, Mm -hmm. good luck. Um, so people ask me why the language in my books is so rough and so much cursing. And I'm like, well, I did spend almost 20 <laughs> years on construction sites. Yep. You'll yeah, get if it. you recorded, <laughs> the, the, if you recorded the language on a construction site, all you'd hear is like the beep, 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 <laughs> you know, and like maybe you get another word. It's like reading a government document. You know, it's like, <laughs> everything. it's all blacked out and you get like one word pickles and then it's all blacked out again. <laughs> Yeah, it was quite an education. Uh, I met a lot of great guys. I met a lot. I mean, I I received death threats more than once. Um, Oh, wow. That's insane. Oh, that's. I was an inspector. So like I would be rejecting work and I had a guy threaten to throw me off the swing stage 20 stories up. Oh, my gosh. 
I had to have him removed from the job, but it was, um, you know, it's a challenging thing. It did teach me a lot about character motivation, people like, uh, it was very different than where I grew up. I was such a book nerd when I was Mm -hmm. a kid and to be, you know, thrust into this very blue collar, very real world, very street smart world where you had to negotiate and talk with people. Um, I made lots of mistakes. I mean, if I were to go back and do that job today, I'd do a lot of things different, but it was, um, it was the education I got. And it well, was- that, that's how we learn. We have to make mistakes. I, I always say, if, if you're not making mistakes, you're just not doing anything. You know, you have to make <laughs> <Yeah>. mistakes <laughs> or you're just not working. Yeah. Uh, that but is the truth that you're going to learn. It always put the guys at ease if I would curse at it on the site because, you know, it was like mm-hmm. time. Like the minute I was on the site, I was like, oh gosh, we got to act right. And, you know, yeah. so I tried to make friends where I could. My husband and I have been together since I was 19 and he would help me with the sports talk. So like I would be hanging out with him and I really don't. <laughs> I mean, I'm a Cleveland sports fan for sure, but not, you know, not the way he is. And so I would be able to go on the job site on Monday and be able to say things like, could you believe that call yesterday? That play? <laughs> yeah. And, well, so that that's also where you learned to swear was being yeah. a, a Cleveland sports fan. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> all the words come to mind during every game. You know, and I tell you, the Cleveland sports fan is such an inspiration to me. I mean, as a writer, you start to realize and understand what makes people care about characters, like what makes you root for somebody. And oh my gosh, we all love an underdog. Most characters that you'll see in a story, especially fish out of water stories or every man facing terrible odds, like there's always this underdog and it makes you just so compelled to root for them. And so I will always be a Cleveland sports fan for that reason alone. I mean, my husband gets upset when they don't win. I'm like, no, no, no. We're here for the daytime beers and the human. Like this is lovely. Well, I think, I think Cleveland though is borderline when it's like rooting for the underdog is one thing and, and being a glutton for punishment is, is another. (laughs) And, and Cleveland is very borderline glutton for punishment at this point. Like I'm almost desensitized to the losses. When, when the Jets beat the Browns the other week, I, was, I just I just kind of shrugged it off and I just went okay. It, not, we're in Cleveland. not me, not me. I went to my bathroom and whipped myself like the albino in the division. Game. <laughs> well, you know that's, that's the reality, Jalovec. <laughs> a long-suffering Cleveland sports fan. It's almost like a Shakespearean tragic character. I just I I, I it's part of why I love Cleveland. Like there's just something um, romantic about it. Oh, it's, yeah, it's definitely something. I I, I, I just remember, I, I mean, who, who in Cleveland's going to forget where they were in 2016 when the Cavs won the championship? Like oh, that was, we were in nobody's going to forget that. I almost lost my two kids, like in the crowd. Like we were, we were there. Yeah. Celebrating. yeah. And my dad went his whole life. He never saw any Cleveland yeah. sports team win anything. So Honestly, well, maybe, in that maybe, moment, maybe maybe he saw the Browns when before there was Super Bowls. He might have seen that <laughs> back in the long times. Yeah, and that was a long time, or, ago. or or knew of it anyway. Yeah. Oh boy. So so kind of moving on uh, a little bit now. I so you were doing the forensics um, and the, and the engineering. 
And then one day there was a specific job you kind of went on that might have inspired your first book. Do we want to talk about that? Sure. I mean, I think it goes back before that, you know, I, I kind of have this notion that the entire world is a haunted house. Um, and it is, it is, you know, right. And I've always been obsessed with buildings. Like I grew up in farm country. So like every falling down barn, like every old farmhouse that was falling apart, like every big rich house I would drive by. I, I just found myself obsessed about the stories of what was going on. And I think that's ultimately why I chose civil engineering and structural engineering over chemical or like you know, other um, careers. Cause I've always been obsessed with buildings and architecture. And for a while I thought it was the beauty and the architecture and the design that I was obsessed with. But as I've gotten older, I think what I've come to realize is that it's really the humanity of a building, like the stories of the people that built it, how it got financed, all the workers that died, you know, bringing it together, all the people that have lived there. And then when you live in a city like Cleveland, you get to see also the end of life of a building, like where it's abandoned and living this sort of um, stagnant, dormant life. And what happens to that building? Does it survive? And, and and to me, the drama of that, it's such a microcosm of the human experience. It's, you know, when we as a society pool our resources to build something as expensive as a building, it really does mean something. And if you look at the buildings that were built before the war and all the beautiful architecture that we have in downtown Cleveland of the pre-war era, you know, the craftsmanship, the, the actual stonemasons, the, 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 the artistry that went into these buildings before artistry became too expensive is, is really something to behold. And so I've been obsessed with these buildings most of my life, um, which is how I came to work on them and why I was wandering through a building that was vacated and abandoned in downtown Cleveland um, at East 9th and Euclid in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, the old Ameritrust complex and the Cleveland Trust Bank Rotunda at the corner of East 9th and Euclid Avenue um, was a project of mine. It was empty. And the real estate holding company that, um, or the management company that was holding it for a tax write-off um, with the hopes of selling it, um, redeveloping it one day, you know, when you're holding an empty building, like a lot of companies have done in Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Detroit and, and other cities in the Rust Belt, um, you know, you have to maintain it to a certain degree so it doesn't collapse into the street and kill people, um, which has happened. I mean, yeah. there's been several people that have been struck by falling bricks and falling terracotta and stones from tall buildings. Um, people have died in Boston. A guy was a city council member in Columbus, Ohio, lost his entire leg when a piece of building fell on him. Um, people have been struck and killed in Chicago. Any city, oh. any city that has old buildings that were built um, between 1890 and the, the Second World War, they were built with steel skeletons and steel accessories like hooks and little pieces of steel that hold everything together. But they were not built with good waterproofing and sealing practices. Like we didn't really understand how these buildings would function after 100 years. And a lot of the steel starts to rust. So 
these buildings become potentially lethal. And then when they sit empty and their roofs don't get replaced and nobody's keeping the windows functioning, you know, over time, they really start to fall apart. So this building had been empty for about 10 years. And I was there doing a safety survey to make sure that nobody got injured um, by a falling window glass or a piece of brick. Um, so I was doing an interior survey and an exterior survey of 1010 Euclid Avenue, the Sweatland building, which is part of the complex and one of the old, the, one of the oldest, um, portions. And now what's interesting is that portion was built with a steel skeleton, whereas the Cleveland Trust Rotunda, which everybody thinks of, it was built in 1908. The architect was George B. Post. He went down with the Titanic. Um, it's oh this, man. Yeah. It's this what a like, story. It's this iconic Federalist, like beautiful Greek revival building. You right now it's a Heinen's. Um, but for years, I was just there. All these that things is so funny. The things. Every all these buildings that were so historical. It's like this one's a Heinen's, and, and you no, know, and, this and, and but, but here's what's funny, and I have to say this just because it came up. So we, my band, just played the Heinen's wedding. And they had it, they had it in that building. Uh, and it's beautiful. I mean, super beautiful. And everyone kept on saying that it was the Rockefeller's personal vault. Is that true? Do you know uh, of that? Well, it was one of the few banks in Cleveland. And there didn't used to be regional banks. Like, you'd have to go downtown, even if you lived, like, in Strongsville or Parma. You had to go downtown to do your banking um, back, you know, almost 100 years ago. It wouldn't surprise me if Rockefeller used that bank because it was one of the preeminent banks downtown. Yeah, uh, that would make sense. And he lived pretty close to there. I, I shot yeah. a movie in his house, um, exactly. his, his original house on the east side. It's it's huge. They have like big mud rooms and then there's like a servant's quarters and they actually have uh, little stairways and stuff where they kept all the servants hidden. So yeah. they weren't shown to right. the public. And so they had their own separate stairwells. And I went through the whole house and like was just gobbling all the history up. Um, so cool. Doesn't it? Yeah. I love that stuff. It drives, it, it makes my imagination go crazy. So I'm in this old office tower and just being in the tower was fascinating. Um, the way I described the building in the dead key, my first novel is very much the way I found it. There were, entire floors that were gutted but then there were floors that hadn't been touched since the late 1970s 1978 is when um, shaker savings and loans closed and they owned the building at the time and there were several floors that still had personnel files there were offices that still had coffee mugs on the desks there were there were desks that still had files in the drawers with people's social security numbers like there was there was a coat hanging from the back of one of the office doors. Like it was like a bomb had gone off and just vaporized all the people. It really reminded me of the horror movies of my youth, like night of the comet. One of my yes. favorite old timey horror movies. I, was I like, love that movie. <laughs> like everyone turned to sand and I was like, yes. and they left all their stuff behind. Um, I was, so my imagination, it was going crazy just having grown up on Stephen King and V.C. Andrews and John Saul and, and John Carpenter's movies and, you know, like oh, all, yeah. all the great classic horror movies of the eighties. Like that was what was going through my brain when I'm walking through this place. 
And um, what may, what some people don't know is that the Sweatland building, uh, 1010 Equally Avenue, the Cleveland Trust Rotunda, and then the big Ameritrust Tower that was built in the 60s behind the rotunda, they're all connected through tunnels and vaults in the basement. And um, I was invited to go look through uh, by the building, uh, the engineering manager for the holding company invited us down to go look at the vaults while we were doing our survey. They're like, you've got to come see this stuff. And so I was underneath Euclid Avenue and East 9th Street in the brick tunnels. I was in the vaults. Um, there are seven or eight vaults down there. It's a maze. It's easy to get lost down there. And in one of the vaults, there was all these safe deposit boxes that like an entire room, like floor to ceiling, thousands of boxes, just lining. Unopened, the- sealed. Yeah. Yeah, locked up in steel. That is so crazy. It's so cool to think about what's in those boxes. I want to open a mic right now. I know. And so this was like 2000, 2001. Um, There were a bunch of keys scattered on the ground. A couple of the boxes had been drilled open. I asked them questions, you know, when the bank got sold. You know, what happened was Ameritrust folded. It got bought by Society for Savings that became Key Bank when they built the big Key Bank Tower the tallest building in the Cleveland skyline, which by the way, I've been on top of, I've actually touched the silver pyramid um, doing work as an engineer. Um, They vacated the Ameritrust tower. They consolidated, people got laid off. They moved everything. And after years of research, I found and meeting people that used to work there after my book came out um, that they did advertise in the paper, like, Hey, the bank has been sold. Um, now when a bank gets sold, it's a very secretive process. Um, it's often not publicized till after the fact. And sometimes people come to work and there's just chains on the doors. Like you mm-hmm. don't even know you're getting fired till that yep. morning and you show up and the bank's been sold because of what happened during the great depression with people freaking out and trying to withdraw their money. There's a lot of rules about what happens if a bank gets sold or bought or closes mm-hmm. down. They don't want the public freaking out. So they keep it very right. secret. Anyway, so they did advertise, hey, come get your safe deposit box. The bank's been sold. You've got this time to come get it. And a lot of people did not. And um, what I found fascinating walking through this vault was this idea that you would have something so valuable, you would pay monthly rent for a safe deposit box, but you wouldn't come get it if you needed to like how yeah. how did these things get lost and so for 10 years that bothered me like that that mystery of like yeah why and there's so many different reasons that could be for each one you know like it just got forgotten about because the person who originally was renting it passed away and nobody even knew of its existence or they yeah. themselves got like some sort of amnesia or uh not not really amnesia but even like dementia of some type you know and and never told anybody about it or and then it just gets forgotten or or the family's living in california and they're like i don't care what's in there i'm not making my way out there to get it you know it's like or the obvious reason ancient aliens (laughs) (laughs) left them there with the keys (laughs) Yeah. Right. <laughs> which I did I think I did see an episode on the History Channel about that <laughs> yeah, I didn't know I saw it I saw aliens. it too yes the ancient <laughs> aliens from 1908 Cleveland yes so 
So I, yeah, no, I did some research. Like after I saw this, you know, you, you just, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but like, I was obsessed with this problem. Like it just sort of bugged me for almost a decade. Like I would, every once in a while I would be like bored at work or just taking a break. And I would start doing research. Like why would someone, what, what could be in these boxes and what are the rules? Like, how do you even, what happens when a box goes dormant or dead? And like, what do they do? And I learned that hundreds of millions of dollars get abandoned in banks every year in this country. Millions in Ohio alone go unclaimed. And that, yes, exactly as you described, like people die or, or don't tell people about the box they rented. Um, and a lot of times it's wills or paperwork that, you know, after a certain window of time no longer matter. But it's um, what happens is after about three to five years, the bank is allowed to open the box and sell whatever is in there. If it's diamond rings, if it's family heirlooms, they're allowed to liquidate it all. But they do have to keep a record of what the value was, like the money they got for your stuff. They have to keep a record and they keep it in perpetuity. So if you ever have any relatives that come looking for your, for your belongings or your, you know, that they can make a claim. And it just so happens that in Europe, there are things called air hunters that will find these lost treasures, like these abandoned fortunes, and then go searching for the next of kin. And if they locate some relative that can make a claim on this half million dollars or whatever, they take a cut. Oh, that actually sounds like a fun job. I know. I know. You know, you know what would happen to me? The only thing that they'd find, they'd pull that drawer. I'd be all excited. They'd be like, we found something in your family's name. And they'd pull it out and it'd just be empty bottles of Canadian Windsor. For my, <laughs> for my <laughs> with a Shame, little note. Just for with you. With a little note. I'll pay you back. I owe you, Brian. Don't worry. I got you. <laughs> Yeah, same. I don't have hidden family wealth anywhere. I do not. I do not have hidden family wealth. Unfortunately, I don't think it's for me. No, that would be fun. But yeah, so I, um, I got this inspiration, like this little kernel of an idea, this mystery that, um, really bugged me. And it wasn't until I had kids quit my job and was climbing the walls with boredom and insanity trying to do like a stay-at-home mom thing that I really had the guts to sit down and actually try to write a story about it like I had I had started a few notebooks I had ideas like Beatrice Baker one of my main characters was called Beatrice Baker back in 2003 and I, I cracked up when I discovered this because I finally found one of my lost notebooks just a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know? like oh, I, that's, such, that's yeah. a find in itself. That's a great find. Find an old notebook like that with all your old ideas. Like, look, she had her name back then. Um, so, yeah, so it, it just really stuck with me. But it took a lot. It took a lot of life changes and it took a lot of um, desperation, I guess you would say, for me to even consider trying to write a story about this fantastic mystery I stumbled onto when I was working. Now, when it, this is just kind of interesting, and I had, had read this, and I kind of wanted to bring it up. So part of that time period for you, like when you were just starting to write, like wasn't one of your rules to write 1500 words a day, five days a week, to just yeah. kind of be like, 
this is almost my exercise for the day. I'm going to write 1500 words, no matter what, I don't know, good, bad or whatever, but that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I think that I, and I give that advice, um, to when I teach classes or I seminars or workshops, I, I talk to writers that are just starting out about what the difference is between having a great idea and actually being able to get that idea down on paper. And I had a great idea for years and years and years. And I even tried writing about it a few times, but it wasn't until I actually started to research a little bit more about the process of writing a novel that I had the tools to really tackle the project. Cause it's such a daunting mountain to climb um, to write something as long as a novel Um, And it's not something you can do in a day. It's not something you can do in a week. I mean, this is a project that's going to take a year. Oh, yeah. And so without having a roadmap or any kind of guideline, because there's nobody in charge of you, there's no boss to tell you that you did your job today. There's no right. There's no checks or balances like you're just on your own. No one um, you have to you discipline yourself. You have to discipline yourself. You know? Yeah, you yeah. have to come up with whatever system works for you. And so what worked for me was um, a book I read. It came out of National Novel Writing Month or NaNoWriMo, as it's called by, you know, cool kids. It's um, a movement that started over a decade ago. in I think it was Seattle, where a couple of friends decided that they were done talking big talk about writing a book and that they were actually going to make each other do it. And they came up with a strategy, like we are going to write 1500 words a day, come hell or high water every single day in the month of November. And if you do that for an entire month, you end up with about 50, 60,000 words, which is a novel length work. And so they formed kind of a support group. And it, now it's an nas- international movement. Like it's, it's an event that happens at libraries across the country now every November. They have all kinds of novel writing seminars and classes because you know, it's a known thing that November is National Novel Writing Month. And so I got a book that came from one of the original founding members of this movement. It was called No Plot, No Problem. It was just, you know, a dumb title, but it was, is perfect for me. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need a basic. And I don't know about you guys, but if you wander the bookstore aisles into, um, you know, the, the novel writing how to section, like all the books on writing novels, a lot of them are enormous tomes of like college level English lit. Like this is they're like reference books looking. Yes, things. Yeah. They're like textbooks. And it, mm-hmm. it was daunting. And I was like, you know, I don't know if I've got the time or energy to get through that. I've got two babies, but this was a small book. It was funny. It was fast. It was easy to read. And it just had some very basic instructions. And so one was 1500 words a day. And what was great is that you, you do your 1500 words and you actually did your job for the day. Like you could actually feel good about yourself. And when you're writing something long, like a novel, having little wins and victories and, and milestones are, are how you survive it because it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the enormity of the task. And you just have to hit your base camps every day. So yeah, and that's a good, that's a good idea too. It's like it, you set a goal and then you can almost feel accomplished because you've met the goal. Even, yeah. on, even on the real goal is to write the novel. You have yeah, a small goal, 1,500 words, you yeah. hit that goal, and you're like, I feel good. 
I can move on. I can go to sleep now. I don't need to stay up tonight. But but what you said was at the end, all, all of a sudden you look up and you've got 60,000 words, right? Yeah. And it's like at, at that point, at that point, it becomes more about just like editing. Right. Because well, you've, you've got material. You you If you have somewhat of a coherent idea, now it's just time to edit. And suddenly you've hey, got don't let don't let Dave fool you. He, t- he said in another episode that uh, he hasn't even read 800 pages in his entire life. So 60,000 <laughs> words. Is oh, no. Is. Oh, no. I, I'm, I'm saying I assume other people do it. well yeah and the thing that um the fun part once you get over the hump of actually the hardest part about writing books is believing you can do it and that part took me um, like nine years to get to that point and it wasn't even at the end like I thought I could do it it was that I was so desperate I wanted to try it because I was going crazy um because it's a big act of hubris like this idea that you've got a story to tell that's worth telling and that anybody else would want to hear. Now, I think it's very therapeutic to write. I think there's all kinds of writing. I think that it's great when people just journal or write for themselves. Um, But I'm talking about a story that you're trying to tell others. And do you have a right to do that? Uh, Are you good enough to do that? Is your story good enough to do that? Like, why would I even try to do that? It's like running off to join the circus. Um, or the idea that, you know, my couple friends and I are going to have a hit record, you know, it's, it happens, but it's pie in the sky. It's, it's not the way I was raised to live my life. Like I was, I was raised to be very practical and get a practical job and, and have skills and support myself. And these fanciful ideas of being an artist or, or having, um, you know, books to publish just never even occurred to me. Uh, so the hardest part is getting over that hump for a lot of people, but then once you're there and once you've got your first draft, I, you know, the, the, the joke's on you because the real work does begin of trying to transform this heaping pile of steaming pages that have a lot of potential into something you can sell. And, you know, it took me almost four years of editing and rewriting the dead key to get something that I could sell. So you you edited the dead key yourself, or did you ever give it to somebody else to help with that? Oh, all kinds of things. I, I my husband uh, is still my first reader, so he always gives me feedback on every draft. Okay. Poor man is a tortured soul. He has his because <laughs> he's read everything I've written twelve times over. Um, so he's. I call a, I call my wife I call my wife the bullshit detector. See? Um, because I know she'll always tell me the truth, <laughs> which is good. Everybody needs that yes. because you can't just have that one person to tell you everything's great all the time. But you you don't you don't want to hand it to that person who's just jealous of the fact that you're doing it, so everything sucks too. You know, right? One person is going to be like, "Hey, no, I, I really like it, but you could probably do without this." You know, like it doesn't make much sense or something, and then. Yeah. It's an honest opinion. It's an honest Yeah, you, you just need somebody to be honest. Whether you agree with them or not, that's a different story. But they you want somebody to be honest with you. Yes. And having, unfortunately for my husband um, or any family member or frankly, anybody that's close to you, there it's a, it's a perilous job. Uh, and my husband and I have had many fights because there are some sensitivities there. Like you, this is my baby. This is my 
you know, you, you fall in love with your own work and it's dangerous. Like I do recommend that writers put their books away for weeks before trying to edit them because you need to divorce yourself from all your pretty words and be ready to get mm-hmm. out a, a butcher's knife and an ax and, and hack it to pieces. Yep. Um, but it takes emotional detachment to do that. The best editors are strangers. And yeah. I, yeah. I had, a, I was very fortunate to find um, a student at the time who I knew through with a family that had some literary background who um, gave me a very thorough and dispassionate uh, read of one of the drafts of the dead key. And it was, it was like taking a graduate level class. Now this kid had gone to an Ivy league school and actually did take graduate level classes in literature. So when he gave me notes, they were very thoughtful and I learned a ton um, best couple hundred bucks I ever spent, you know, to have this, this person who has an education in this, um, to give me an educated and, and well-informed read. And it was, it was fabulous. Like I said, best money ever. And I think it was instrumental to getting the dead key to a place where I could sell it. Well, that's a, that's a good segue to actually start talking about the dead key. And I, and I, I told you at the beginning, I was going to go over the awards this one won and every one of your books have won several awards but this one in particular the dead key came out in 2015 it was a number one amazon bestseller won breakthrough novel uh in 2014 it was the number one mystery bestseller the number one financial bestseller the number one thriller and suspense bestseller the number one amateur sleuth bestseller the number one amazon historical bestseller i'm glad i can take breaths wow. between these. and uh the 2017 reader's choice award at frankfurt book fair um oh, <laughs> what was that like in your words to have your first novel that you uh, you, you said took nine years to produce so this is a huge chunk of your life that and all that passion and all that work to be recognized at this level what was it like to, to hear that? Oh, gosh. I mean, the whole thing has been, it's been really surreal. Um, you know, the, whole, the only reason why the book got published at all was because I entered it into that Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award contest. It was, yeah. a, it was like American Idol for books. And uh, 2014 was the last year that Amazon ran this contest. Um, Because when Amazon decided to become a publisher like Penguin Random House or any other publisher, as opposed to just a bookseller, because up until 2010, Amazon just sold other people's books. And they they decided to open up their own publishing arm. And so they created Amazon Publishing and then several. They've decided to open basically everything for everything. I mean, they, they're trying to do everything now. They, they are, saw yeah. someone else making money and said, we should make that money instead. <laughs> <laughs> we could get into the politics of Amazon because they're, they are fraud. But like when they, Amazon started as a bookseller. When I was in college in 94, I remember some of my classmates buying their books off of Amazon and I thought it was witchcraft. I'm like, what are you talking about? You go to the bookstore. What are you, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, but So Amazon started as a bookseller, they decided to become a publisher, but you know, a lot of established authors were very skeptical. Like, I don't know if I want to sell my books or publish them. 
I don't know if they're going to do a good job. They weren't, you know, considered the same as a New York publisher. So what Amazon started to do was these American Idol searches to find the next big author. And it was how they grew their business. And so by the time I entered the contest in 2014, the contest had been around for about seven or eight years. Um, they shut it down. I broke it. Like after my book came out, that was it. They, they moved on to a different strategy. Um, but I entered my book along with 10,000 other people. And wow. Yeah. That's a lot of people, man. That is a lot of people. That's, that's not American Idol. There's like 30 people you go up against in American Idol. (laughs) Well, you gotta think about all the regional auditions. I mean, this was like, so when you, when I entered my book, um, you entered a synopsis, you entered the first three chapters and you entered the whole book. And you had to pitch it. You, you put together your package and you entered into the contest. And I did it on a lark because I was like, no one's ever going to publish me. I had learned more about the publishing industry after I finished the book and was trying to sell it and realized that, you know, that's a whole other conversation, like how you break into this industry. But I knew that I, it was, a you know, Ice Cube's chance of hell that I would ever get a book deal. So I entered into this contest and um, it went from 10,000 people to 2,000 people. And then it went from 2,000 people to 500 people. And every, so there were five different cuts over the course of eight months. And every single, you know, every other month, my husband and I would be at our computers, just like chewing our nails (laughs) down to the the bone. And my big ambition was to get a publisher's weekly review. That was going to be the prize if you you made it to the top 100, you would actually get your full manuscript read. You would get a real professional review. And I was like, I just want to know what I'm doing wrong. Like, I want to know what I can do better. That's all I wanted. Um, so you asked me how it feels. I mean, nothing compares to the phone call I got when I found out that I won the grand prize. Um, and I, frankly, I don't know that much in my life has compared to that moment. I mean, the birth of my children, getting married. I mean, it was just it was just a, such a shocking thing because I had braced myself to be, you know, to lose six different, you know, five other times, you know? Yeah. And, um, you don't I, want to get attached to the idea that you're going to win something like that because you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So you're not, well, at least I would try to keep right. as distant from that idea as possible yeah. just so I don't destroy myself with grief when I don't win. Yeah. I always say, I always say, don't have expectations and you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> I love that we were all raised by the same hardened Midwestern winter yes. people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who also said, don't ever even pursue your dreams. It's not worth it. That's right. also what they all told us. So. Get a job. Learn yeah. to be a welder. The factory down the street is hiring, okay? That's right. Yeah. The world needs ditch diggers too, Danny. Anyway, yes. so um, yeah, so that moment, so I was actually at my uncle's funeral when I got the call and um, it was, it was just, it was, so there was two calls. The one when I made the top five and I knew I was going to get published. That one, I, I was in my bedroom and I got the phone call and I, I just started crying. I mean, I just dropped to my knees and cried. It was not what I expected to have happen. And my husband and I sat and drank champagne and I just like cried on the couch for like an hour. Um, just this. And idea. deservedly so. 
I wish I would have been there. I would have had some champagne with you because I just it's That's exciting great, it's just hearing moment. about it. I want to drink some champagne just hearing about it. It was such a, a wild thing because, you know, I, it brought me back to those hours and hours of just sitting at a desk and checking shop drawings and wondering if my life would ever uh, amount to what I wanted it to, you know, like if I would ever have a chance to do something memorable or, you know, so just this opportunity to have my voice heard, to have this thing that my children and my children's children can point to and hold in their hand that I made. Um, it was, it was just such a, um, it was such a victory and such a honor to, um, have this chance because I do think that we all have a story in us. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of hard work that goes into trying to get a book out or get your story out in some format. Um, but it also is a tremendous amount of luck that's involved. Yeah. Um, There's, you know, I mean, there's the luck of birth, there's whatever privilege you've got. There's also just being at the right place in the right time. It's where the, you know, the publishing, as I've learned in the years since is very fickle. And what's in fashion today is not in fashion tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the music industry is the same, Dave. I mean, like that, you know, certain things sell five years ago that can't sell today. I mean, oh my gosh, the pandemic, try selling a book so True. on the darker side of life um, at a time where life is too dark. You know, yeah. it's, you know, there is there, you've got to, you, you, when your audience and your work align and you find an audience for your work, it really is it, 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 luck has a lot to do with it. Um, yeah. Not to de- negate or belittle like the amount of work that every author puts in, but it's just, um, it is, it is when the stars align and so many different stars aligned with the dead key. It was just incredible. Um, for another example, crazy coincidence, like when the book was published that very same year, almost the exact same month, the um, Ameritrust complex was reopened and reimagined as a hotel, the Metropolitan Nine, the Cleveland Trust returned oh, yeah. became a, like a Heinen's, and then a bar called The Vault opened in oh, yeah. the vault that inspired the book. I held my book party in the vault that inspired the book. I haven't been there yet and I want to go there so bad and it looks so cool on all the pictures and I haven't been there yet but what are the odds after sitting vacant for almost 20 years that the year it opens up as a nightclub and bar is the year my you know it it just there were so many it just makes you believe in um I don't know well good luck for one thing but it is all some type of fate you some know, type of fate. It felt a little bit like kismet. I was like, well, I always, say, I always say that's decisions. how you know we're living in the matrix. Yeah. You go through all your past decisions and go, if I would have changed anything that I chose in the past, I wouldn't be here today. You know, you're like, what are the actual odds it would like end up like this? The true odds it would end up like this. If I changed any little thing, it wouldn't so end up like So many things this. had to happen that exact way. <laughs> you know. yeah no it, it, helps you, so um, it brings me a lot of yes you, I don't I don't second guess or have regrets about my past which is nice um I, I'm I'm blessed in so many ways with my family my kids I mean I wouldn't change anything about my life even though it wasn't all pretty but um but yeah that was a moment where it did feel like fate was smiling on me and I will forever be grateful because it's not you know how rare is that to have that all happen for you 
So um, as far as other awards and, and, you know, it's exciting to reach an audience. Um, you know, almost a half million people have read The Dead Key and it's really exciting to think that um, I was able to have this sort of communion with all these strangers and these ideas that I had that I was able to share them with them with these people I'll never meet and some of them I do meet and it's really fun but um it's just Stephen King like likens it to witchcraft or magic the idea that I put an idea down on paper and make someone else imagine what I'm saying in their head and the cool thing about a book that's a little bit different than a movie or anything else is you know, you, the reader supplies half the story themselves. Like yep. I put down the words on paper and I've got a picture in my head, but every reader that picks up my book has a slightly different picture based on their own life experiences, based on their own uh, view of the world that, you know, every room of the building and the dead key is a different color for different readers. Like they, they all see yeah. it a little bit differently. And I love that there's this sort of meeting of the minds where I've been able to connect with um, all these different people with this idea. And I don't know, give them, give them a chance to point, paint their own version of it in their minds. I think that's, it's really cool. Um, as far it's as real, I think it's really, really cool. And the fact that, you know, this, the other thing I was thinking about is that it's been translated into eight different languages and since we haven't discussed it yet, the dead key does take place in Cleveland. And to think that there's people all over the world that speaking all different languages that are able to read this book and learn a little bit about Cleveland is so cool to me because when, when you go places, people don't really know Cleveland that well. Like they know New York, they know Los Angeles, they know Chicago, but you go overseas. They're not like thinking about Cleveland. The fact that, you're introducing them to Cleveland in this book. I, I love that. That's that's a romantic notion to me, in a sense. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. I get that question a lot. Like, do readers find Cleveland interesting? Or, you know, what do readers think about Cleveland? And, you know, what I, th- what I love about Cleveland is that it's a little off the beaten path. It would be like reading a book set in Russia that's not set in Moscow. It's like reading more about middle America, like the real America. I like to think that Cleveland embodies the entire American story. The entire American dream is broken down as it is. Um, and all of the ambition and resurrection, you know, and just the redemption of Cleveland, um, especially in the last couple of decades has been really something wonderful to behold. It's like, we can be down, but we're not out. Like there's just a lot of that grit and determination and spirit to Cleveland that I love sharing with people. And it translates like there's, I've never gotten a reader. Um, I, I'm very popular in Germany for some reason. Um, my German translator was fantastic. My German sales have always been really good. Um, and I think that there is some symmetry to that because Germany being a winter, a wintered country and um, yeah. a lot of the culture in Cleveland is German. I'm mostly German. Um, that the sensibility of Cleveland translates to Germany fine. Um, I was at an Oktoberfest just a few weeks ago. Just <laughs> right, and we it was a were. German Oktoberfest, and they were playing polkas, and there was plenty of German people there in in the traditional uh, garb. So it was a good, and I did a shot ski. Yeah, actually, most, most people, 
most people nowadays uh, think they're German and then they get their 23 and me and find out they're not German at all. <laughs> well, in America, we're huge mutts. I got my 23 yes. and me and I'm like 60 different things. So it doesn't really matter too much. <laughs> I'm but. the same. I'm the same. Yeah I'm, a, yeah. I'm an interesting American mix. But as far as how does Cleveland translate to other places? Um, I think Cleveland represents America very well. And I think that it, it translates just fine. I love the Rust Belt for its sort of ashes and Phoenix, right? You know, like all, all of the things that um, our region has gone through that has been happening the world over, like the demise of manufacturing and, and, you know, globalization and how we've recovered and how it's affected, you know, our, yeah, everything about our economy and our culture I think it translates quite well to what's going on in Australia and England and Germany, like across the world, people are trapped, you know, struggling with these same things. Um, So yeah. And I've actually had publishers say to me that they're kind of tired of LA and New York uh, and looking for a different perspective on American story. So Cleveland served me well. I love this town. That's great. That's great. So, so let's just talk about the dead key a little bit. Um, it is your first novel. Uh, it takes place in Cleveland, as we said. We've d- talked a little bit about you finding safety deposit boxes, but this uh, this book actually has a lot to do with safety deposit boxes. And there's a, a character named Iris Latch in there, and uh, she kind of becomes obsessed about this bank's past. Uh, do you want to kind of divulge a little bit about The Dead Key? what it's about. Sure. So what I did with the dead key is kind of live a fantasy out through the character I wrote. Iris Latch is a, um, a, a kind of a more like, what is an extreme fun house version of me? It's not, she's not me, but I did borrow heavily from my own life. I think that a lot of writers do that. Uh, we steal from our friends, we steal from our families, but most of all, we steal from ourselves and our own experiences of the world. Um, so Iris Latch is a disgruntled engineer, very much like I was, and goes into this abandoned bank in the same spot where I went into the abandoned bank. But whereas I went about my daily life and went on to get married and have, have kids and be a normal person, for the most part, um, <laughs> Iris starts really trying to solve the mystery of what happened. And she gets embroiled in the intrigue of this abandoned ghost town of a building. And I wanted to pair Iris with a ghost, um, with somebody from the past. And I love stories that like what John Saul does and what a lot of authors do, um, takes you back into the past as well as tell a story from the present day. And I wanted to know about the women that worked in this building before it shut down. I had been in the upper stories of the building myself and seen the old secretarial pits in the upper floors where it was all a fishbowl and all like the steno pool and all the typists were in the middle and they were surrounded by these corner office executives and they had their little coat room and the the original wood coat room details were still there on some of the floors where there was a little shelf for the gloves. There was a shelf for the purse. There were little hooks for the coats. And I just felt so much empathy for these women that were stuck in these, in this office building with no windows, no fan, no air conditioning 
in stockings and uncomfortable suits and men breathing down their necks and uh, the clock ticking backwards. And it just, it reminded me so much of my days as an engineer in a similar situation. I was in an office building across the street working for an engineer, Mm -hmm. um, for an architecture firm. I was surrounded by the partners and their offices with windows. I was in the, the, the cubicle farm being watched with no privacy. Like I felt, I felt such a kinship for these working women, this first generation of working women. And um, having been a woman in engineering and construction and dealing with being some of the first women working in that field, I I definitely felt um, I wanted to tell that story too. So Beatrice Baker was a, a secretary working in the building right before the terrible tragedy that shut the building down occurs. And um, for me, like I said, the, the world is a haunted house to me, but I love the Gothic story structure of a haunted house story. And the classic structure of a Gothic story is that you have a rich mansion, um, a house on a hill, like, like Hill House or the house in Turn of the Screw or the House of Usher that Poe, Edgar Allan Poe writes about. This big foreboding dark cursed castle with a terrible secret and a terrible past and a young woman typically it's a woman will go in to be the governess or go in to do something as a fish out of water and be terrorized by you know the the powers that be the evil owner of the castle um you know this is the classic dracula frankenstein type of story but for me, the office building was the castle and the executives were the monsters. And I had um, Iris in there chasing ghosts. And for her to be chasing a ghost, she's chasing after the secretary, trying to solve the same mystery that Beatrice was trying to solve. Um, what was going on at this bank and, and what terrible things were being hidden. And um, it was just a lot of fun to write. I can believe that. I Sounds like it. See, the, all these, you're very similar to me in the way you think. Like, all the things you like, I really like. So when you talk about a lot of the books you like, there was an interview that you had done on YouTube, and I had watched it, and you had brought up an Eric Larson book, Devil in the White City. Oh, yeah. I actually listened to that book, and I read that book. And just the way Eric Larson writes with the whole like he makes it sound like it's kind of fiction, like by the way he writes it, but he writes true stories, but he kind of writes them. So you feel like you're reading a story and you're not like just listening to a nonfiction book or reading a nonfiction book. And that was the first time I had ever heard about H.H. Holmes, but that's, we can probably get into that later because I know (laughs) about the architecture of of H.H. H. Holmes. H.H. H. Holmes was one of the most interesting serial killers, I think, in American history. Yeah. Oh, and, and then, perhaps the first, yeah. And, he might have been. And, yeah. and I want to make a note that he came out of the University of Michigan, and I know that you came from <laughs> Michigan, <laughs> but he went to the University of Michigan, and I think everybody here in Ohio can attest that that's probably... That's probably what did it, yeah. Uh, no, I loved I loved Eric Larson's book Devil in the White City. In fact, it was a huge inspiration for my third novel, um, The Unclaimed Victim. The idea that he built a hotel to be a murder weapon, like the building itself was 
uh, machinery to commit murder. Like he, he built in secret passageways. He built in boilers and furnaces. He built in ways to capture and murder women. And, and hiring and firing contractors the whole time. Yep. So that so nobody, nobody knew the layout. So nobody him. really knew. Think about that. Yeah. Fascinating. And, and meanwhile, the, the, the World's Fair is going on in Chicago. And you have like all the big names there, like Tesla, Westinghouse, Edison. They're all building. Uh, it, it, what a cool time. It, that you know just what? the whole time frame of what was you know going what? on. I, I, I want to say something, though, because you, you were talking earlier about some of those great buildings that you got to be in those old buildings. And I, I get to go in a lot of old buildings like that for the different things that I do. People have all kinds of events at these buildings, you know. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm one of those people, I'm like you, when I'm in those buildings the entire time, all I can think about is what has gone on here. Yeah. Like if the, if these walls could talk, if that chair could talk, cause most of the time the furniture is just as old as the building. And right. you're sitting there saying, what if that couch could tell me a story right now? What, what would it say? Cause the, I mean, it's just amazing. And I just think it's cool that you're that type of person who is so in tune to that kind of stuff that it can literally bring you to create stories just from being in it. Because energy attaches itself to buildings like that. I feel like you can literally feel the energy of the people that have been in a building for that long? Well, I definitely had the experience working in the Sweatland building at 1010 Euclid Avenue that I was being followed or that like, I believe it, that feeling like when you stayed up too late watching the X-Files back in the nineties and you start mm-hmm. watching stairs, but then you start watching <laughs> I the love that you faster. <laughs> you convince yourself you're being chased because you just kind of get spooked. Yeah, like there is, yeah, I agree with you. I think that there is um, fingerprints like in a building and there is this kind of, I don't know if everyone senses it, but like I definitely get that that feeling of history. I I just have to say this. My wife and I just went to New York City, so it's still fresh to me. So I just have to tell the story just quickly. But we, we ended up, long story short, we snuck in to the building the old studio 54 building Mm. okay and there was a door that there there was a door that happened to be open and we we slipped in and we got a security guard to let us walk around and look at the place and Mm. i'm i'm telling you you can feel the energy of that it's in the walls of the place it's great it's just it's crazy and that's why i said it just it makes me feel like that because a lot of cleveland buildings make me feel like that too when i'm in them yeah same I know exactly what you mean. It's like that, that like almost like a held scream. Yeah, I had I had the the the, the eeriest feeling I ever had working in. I worked in so many different buildings downtown. Like you can name a building I I worked in. <clears throat> but I had to be by myself one time, and there's an old Sherwin Williams building that is actually dedicated as just a historical building. Now they don't use it for anything. It's completely. I know which one you mean. It looks like a castle. Yes. It's like right on the top of the hill. Yep. And it's right by the flats. And if you turned left at that, or actually, if you went straight, you'd be like going into Tower City parking. But if you turned left, you'd be going to the east bank of the flats. Right. But there's an old Sherwin-Williams building. And it was the original building for the paint company. And the cop, if you actually look down the hill, you see the the now complex that is Sherwin-Williams. So they needed heat trace put down the 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 uh, the gutters 
of the original building to keep them from like having all the water as you talked about now it's making me think about it but like the water was building up on the roof because yeah. the gutters weren't a lot like which they would freeze and they would not allow the water to kind of drain down and uh they wanted a heat trace put in in the gutters so here i am by myself i walk in that building you guys i i have i can't even describe to you the feeling I had when I walked through that building by myself. Like <laughs> I have walked into so many buildings by myself. Okay. I am not scared of being by myself. I'm not scared of walking through an old building. I've been through so many old buildings. I felt like somebody was walking with me the entire time. I felt like yes. somebody was right with me the entire time yes. watching my every move. Like, don't you step out of line? Don't you go anywhere? You're not supposed to go. And actually, why don't you get out of here really quick? When you get in, so, get so out funny. of here. As quickly as you came in, leave. We do not want you here. We don't need you here. I booked it up the stairs, put that heat trace in, made sure that they were happy with it, and I got out just as quickly. I have never felt so uncomfortable in a building in my entire that life. Is, that than is when so it was funny. In the, the old Sherwin-Williams building. And I have not heard that anybody says it's haunted. I don't care. You just had I that feeling when I was in that building. <laughs> well, it's, right. it's that gothic feeling because it looks like a castle. Yes. And it's from the era when like workers had no protections at all. Nope. And, you know, God knows how many people died or were poisoned, like handling all those chemicals and like what kind mm-hmm. of conditions they were under and child labor laws didn't even exist, you know, before what world war one. I. I mean, like, so there were so many, so many ghosts that could be haunting that place, given how old it is. I, told I know. <laughs> I think I felt a lot of them when I was in there by myself. I re- I'm not joking. I was, I was really unnerved when I was in there. I was not yeah. feeling good. It was bad. Well, that doesn't make sense though, because I, all ghosts are civil war soldiers as I'm aware. <laughs> Oh, I, you know, I'm most haunted by, you know, situations where there's a power difference, like the power differential, like when you've got um, a very powerful, rich person with control over the workers, and you know that that situation creates abuse, like there's so, and that's, that's, it's a gothic structure, the idea of the, the rich and corrupt castle dracula like doing abusing or or you know um exploiting the townspeople or or the everyday people i think i don't know there's something about it maybe just all the horror movies i watched growing up but there's something about that when there's that power dynamic i get more of the willies than um yeah when there's not like you walk into a falling down barn or farmhouse like the ghosts that come to me there like the feelings, I guess I would call, and I mean, not the ghost is too literal, but like the feelings I get there, it's more like domestic suspense. Like it's more like family dramas and like what was happening with the family structure, but you don't get that institutional, like you feeling of oppression. Like you get when you're in a factory situation or a prison situation or a mental hospital situation where yeah. there, um, mental abuse. Where there was just that, maybe it's just that feeling of helplessness or something. Just that, yeah. just that feeling of, um, of, uh, 
evil. It almost and makes me, I've always wondered if, if some energy sticks around because there's never, like we all seek this feeling of closure. Even when we're alive, we, like if we break up in a relationship, we still want that feeling of closure. But like, can you imagine being in your life where you didn't feel that there was some sort of closure because there was some sort of abuse or unsolved crime or yeah something that, that went unnoticed that nobody knows about? And you're like, I can't rest until this is, is known. Some sort of secret that isn't known um, and you don't get that closure. And it makes you feel like there's something sticking around saying, until I hear that this is uh, known, I'm not going anywhere. I always get that. that yeah. yeah. I, for me, it's like, it's, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. For me, it's like that, that sense of like injustice or a tragedy still in progress. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Whether it, it was what killed them or not, they just experienced it. And they're like, no, this, I can't rest until I know that, you know, everybody knows about this. Like this is this <laughs> something. I don't know. There's also like there's some sort of warning there, isn't there? Like that feeling like, like there's a warning. And yes. If we're, I, I yeah, it's 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 so interesting to try to put words to it. But that's exactly what I try to do with some of these places that's that make me feel these things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's kind of transition into the to the next book, which would be the buried book. Um, that came out in 2016. Um, now this one, actually, you've talked about how you grew up in Michigan and this book takes place in Michigan mm-hmm. uh, with a nine-year-old named Jasper. And it really, the premise is kind of, he's searching for his mother. Um, and I know it's, uh, is it actually in Detroit or is it more the Detroit area in like a farm, on a farm? Um, well, it takes place close to Port Huron, um, like up in Birchville in the Thumb, but it starts in Detroit, uh, where okay. Jennifer is living with his mother and father, um, and he's inexplicably dropped off at his uncle's farm, and his mother vanishes, and um, the mystery of where she went and why he's been left behind is is really the basis of the story, and it was inspired by my father's life, where that did happen to him. My, my grandmother vanished in uh, 1949 and she was gone for many years. And, um, you know, the lore of my family growing up was very much shaped by my father's childhood. He grew up, um, he started in Detroit in a, an apartment and then landed on a struggling dairy farm in Birchville up in the thumb of Michigan where they didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, he went to a one-room schoolhouse it was like he was dropped back in time about a hundred years. Um, and wow. so growing up with a father that lived under these circumstances, you know, where, you know, suicide was rampant in this farming community. Um, when a barn burned down, a family could be entirely ruined. Like there was, everyone was living day to day, mouth to mouth, like just trying to get through um, and survive. And Uh, His experiences there, you know, really shaped a lot of my, the way I was raised. And so I like to joke around about like, you know, try asking for a Barbie dream house when your dad had to go use an outhouse in the middle of winter. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it just, it really became kind of the mythology of my family. And 
uh, we, my grandmother died um, in the early nineties and took her secrets with her to the grave. Like my father to this day, doesn't know where she went for those years, why she came back, what happened to her. She was a very different person when she came back. And um, it's, it's just one of these things that he's tried his best to let go, but it kind of still haunts me. And I wanted to solve this mystery in my own way. And wow. so re- researching farm country um, in that part of Michigan is, I mean, having grown up in Michigan and then having um, had family, you know, in Michigan and, and visiting where my father actually did grow up. Uh, it's an interesting community. It's an interesting mix of, you know, American Gothic and also American crime story. Like there were Ku Klux Klan members like living in my mm-hmm. father's community. There were mobsters that were controlling the dairy trade in my father's community. There were yeah. like, there was all of these big city crime elements that I find fascinating out there in pastoral farmland. Um, along with where there's all money of- to be made. You know? Sure. And it, but there. along with all of the um, the difficulties of farm life, which I grew up in a small town in, in a house with three bathrooms. So like I, I was never exposed to that. But in my research, I did go to a working farm and I did do some of the things that you do on a farm. And I did visit, you know, I did try to recreate it as close to reality as I could. Um from 1953. So it was just, it was a really interesting and kind of cathartic experience to solve that mystery in a way that a nine-year-old boy would enjoy, you know? And so my husband, my father and I kind of bonded over it. He didn't agree with everything that I did in the book, but, um, but, you know, after I wrote it, he actually started writing himself and it, yeah. And it made him kind of, I think, consider what his own childhood in a different light because he had um, he had come to terms with it in his own way, but you know, men of that generation, no therapy, no no reconciliation, just right under the rug, and everything's fine. Yeah. And they were so, their own therapy. They had to figure out yeah. how they were going to deal with all this stuff, right, wrong, or in between. It didn't right. matter. Yeah. They, they had to. There figure was out no how help coming. Continue. Exactly, and the way we we get through those things is by telling ourselves stories, and. He told himself a story that he chose to stay on the farm and that he was happier there. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was rude of me to come along and question that story, but he, he accepted that. Okay. And, and it was just an interesting adventure to kind of look at. And it just so happens that when my father was living on that farm, uh, the worst group of tornadoes to ever hit Michigan or Ohio tore through, um, I think it was June 8th, 1953. Um, parts of Ohio, um, especially the western side of Cleveland, were hit. Um, but eight tornadoes touched down in Michigan, and it's not a tornado area. Um, but it was like the hand of God just like came down and destroyed houses and farms and ripped trees up by the roots, and but spared other places. So, I mean, I grew up hearing stories about this terrible storm and all the cows that got lifted and dropped and the family that got stripped naked and thrown a county over and the bull that showed up in the neighbor's yard that nobody could figure out where it came from. I mean, I I grew up with this sort of Wizard of Oz twist on all of my childhood, all of my father's childhood. So it was interesting to use that, um, that storm and 
the other things going on in the region at the time um, as a backdrop to the mystery. Oh, yeah. Cool. And, and it's great that you used, like, things that had happened in your own family. You know, I, I think about, like, you know, you talk about the farm setting. It's very similar. Dave and I share the same grandparents on my mother's side and his mother's side. And, like, they grew up in rural Kentucky. No bathrooms no shoes electricity electricity had a father that was the type of guy who was not only an alcoholic but like the type of guy who was you know what today i i know i have seven kids but i'm gonna go ahead and drive on down to the restaurant here have my kids outside the restaurant putting their i know i know they're all hungry but i'm gonna eat a steak in the window, cut it piece by piece, watch them look at me eat this steak, bite by bite, I know they're super hungry, and then I'm going to go back and let them be tortured like that. I mean, we've we heard stories about how they knew my grandfather had stolen some bologna because he had finally had some color in his face, you know, like the, those are the type of stories. <laughs> and those were, those were considered funny stories. Those were considered funny stories in our family. Right. Those, those were, were like, the bad you know, stories. Those yeah. Were yeah. Funny. Those were the funny ones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you think about like that, that rural early part. I mean, that probably would have been like the thirties and forties um, yeah. for him. Uh, but you know, that just, that part of America and he, he grew up to be one of the most loving individuals you'd ever meet on the entire in the entire world. But that's how he grew up, you know, and uh, just to think back and be like, oh, that I, if I wrote, I'd probably write a story about somebody like that. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. you, you, I mean, you, we, we all have these crazy stories in our families, right? There's always. um Yeah, it's amazing to me how humans have like endured. And when I talk with folks, like just the crazy stories I've heard from readers around, you know, around the Cleveland area, who grew up on farms and and would tell me tales that would just like curl your eyelashes like, yeah, just, um, we had to make Jasper older in the story to appease like a modern audience because they decided at the publishing house that what happened to my father when he was five, six, seven was not realistic for a modern audience to believe that a child could survive. And, you know, and, and, and you really realistic. go back and you think about, you talk about child labor laws and stuff, but when you look at old pictures, like the chimney sweeps, they used to have like three and four year old kids going up those chimneys because they were the ones crazy. small enough to do it. So crazy. Yeah. Or you see the ones like the five or six year old smoking cigarettes or the mm-hmm. fact that like newspaper boys in New York at eight, nine, 10 years old were the beginnings of the American mob. You know, like that <laughs> fighting over territory for newspaper routes was like, you know, the turn of the century was where some of the American mob came from. You know, like, um, it's, it's incredible what, what kids, I mean, these days it's considered child abuse if you let your child like go to the playground by themselves if they're not. No, 16, yeah, no. You know? no, nowadays, nowadays you would never be able to find a factory that would let your kid work 10 hours. I have tried. 
Uh, you know, right? It's got so much energy, too. I've I filled out applications for them. <laughs> I've, uh, they will not hire them. They just won't. <laughs> I know. But it just, it cracked me up. Like, when I talked, when I was touring around the region, um, talking to libraries and, and bookstores about that this particular book, um, it was just really interesting how the definition of childhood and what a child is capable of has truly changed. And it's, it's been interesting reading the reviews for the buried book and the mail I would get um, from readers that didn't believe that Jasper could survive what he did. And then, and then there'd be the older readers who were annoyed that he was such a crybaby, you know? So it's just, it's, there's a big generational gap, I think, in, in what we uh, believe children are capable of. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? What a dichotomy there. Like you have like these people that are like, what a crybaby, this child <laughs> whose mother has disappeared on him and he's just trying to get by. And then these other people, oh, that could never happen in today's society. That's impossible. Yeah. It's well, you know, it's a real lesson in um, trying to keep your readers happy. It's, it's always going to be a tension between making every reader happy, which is impossible and like impossible, not even worth trying staying true to the story you want to tell but when you're trying to sell a story you can't be um, oblivious to your audience you have to consider the reader um but defining yeah it that that's that's a real tension that's it's always tough because the other problem with novel writing is that we want a story to make sense we want closure like you had talked about before um, yeah we want the life in a story to end up a certain way. And as we all know, life in the real world doesn't usually do that. So when you're trying to tell a story and be realistic about it, like, and have like a gritty realism to the story, it's a real tough balancing act, like to balance what you want from a story with what would actually happen in real life. Yeah. And I, um, so, so with that, I, I do want to move on to the next, the next book, which is The Unclaimed Victim, which came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. And, and when we talk about your last two books, and it being October, like we're really getting into the season for what these got, the, the premise of these books, because when we talk about The Unclaimed Victim, we have a kind of a parallel timeline here where you have 1930s Cleveland with the torso murders going on. And then there's also ties back to 1999. And it just kind of makes me think, because I actually, in October, went on a tour for the torso murders. Every every October, they do yeah. like a little bus tour where you can so go to crazy. every location that the torso, every, you know, every murder, the location that the body turned up that they are attributing to the torso murderer. If it all was just one person or he, she, or whoever did it in each case. Um, But it's, it's pretty intense. So uh, why don't we like kind of transition into the unclaimed victim and, and and talk a little bit about what you went through to get that, that the idea for that book. Yeah, so this was a book I never planned to write. Like I um, was obsessed with a building, as you, as most of my stories begin. I was obsessed with a building, and um, I was researching unsolved murders. 
And what I like to do in this sort of historical fiction mystery thriller that I like to put together, I like to find real crimes and real historical events to ground the story I'm telling. Cause I do find that truth is stranger than fiction. And I do too. Yeah. I do too. And you look at Cleveland history and there's just so many bizarro stories to tell. And I really do take a lot of my cues because I want to write about a real place. I don't make up my cities. I don't make up my locations. I, I try to ground them in a real place and I try to dash it and, and sprinkle in a real history of what's really going on at the time of these stories. And I really get inspired by actual crimes And so I knew that I wanted to tell a story about the Union Gospel Press building in Tremont because I lived in Tremont for many years and was obsessed with this abandoned factory. And it is, it looks like something H.H. Holmes would dream up like in a fever dream. It's, you know, what, 175,000 square feet of factory space. It was built and I think seven different phases it's like 11 buildings crammed together with no master floor plan that makes any sense it was built in stages as the gospel union gospel press workers had money um it was just it's a bizarro building and it's an interesting iconic place it's now tremont place lofts that they've turned into condos um in tremont but at the time i was living in tremont in the 90s and early 2000s it was vacant and um, it was an abandoned artist commune. Like it had this amazing history. And I just knew that I wanted to write a story about it. And I knew I wanted it to have a murder that was not solved. So I started looking around for murders in the 20s and 30s, because that's when the Union um, Gospel Worker Society was at its peak in Tremont. And this was a Anabaptist uh, evangelical, uh, you know, what's the, what's the word? when they, they go, the, the, oh God, missionary, they were missionaries. And yeah, they were urban missionaries that came from Pennsylvania to save the souls of the Cleveland factory workers, especially the new arrivals from Europe, which is ironic because Tremont has more churches per capita than anywhere else in the nation. But they decided that this was where (laughs) They had to save the souls of these new arrivals to America and these factory workers. And it was like a group of nuns. There were over 200 women cloistered together behind these high brick walls in Tremont. And they would go on the balconies of the building with their guitars and sing uh, hymns to the neighborhood. They would sing in uh, downtown Cleveland. They had Bible studies. They handed out pamphlets. They were trying to save everybody's souls. And lore has it that on certain nights, maybe in October, you can still hear the women singing. And they dressed like um, Mennonites. They, the women all wore the same outfit. They had the long blue skirts, the white shirts. They were um, not that far removed from the Mennonite and Amish um, persuasion. And so this sort of society unto itself behind these high brick and iron walls was in Tremont. And they, like I said, at the height, there were over 200 women living in these tiny little dorms with like a few male overseers, which as we've talked earlier, that kind of power dynamic always brings up the the heebie-jeebies in me and it, it spooks me and makes me think, oh gosh, what kind of abuses of power occurred? 
And um, so I was looking for a killer in that time period. I was looking for something unsolved. And it didn't take very long to stumble across the torso murders. Um, for those not familiar, the torso killer or the butcher of Kingsbury Run is credited with killing 13 people between 1934 and 1939 in Cleveland and very famously and publicly displaying the bodies, um, at least for the first couple of victims. And then the last few victims, a couple were found in in dumpsters a couple you know there were there were some exceptions but it it terrorized the city um and made national headlines uh that we had and this was before the word serial killer even existed um the term serial killer wasn't even invented until the 1970s so at the time this was a this was an anomaly and and our idea about a serial killer today the fact that we know today, because of the work the FBI did in the 70s and 80s, we know that serial killers look like everybody else. We know oh, yeah. that you that you could be living next to a serial killer and never realize it. We know that there's two kinds of serial killers, generally speaking. There's the disorganized kind that has no master plan and gets caught pretty easily and leaves messy crime scenes behind. And then there's the highly organized, highly romanticized genius, quote unquote, serial killer that um, has a grand plan, is very elusive, has a high body count, has an elaborate ritual that they're trying to achieve. And, um, you know, they're always motivated some way by sex, but like this we have all this psychological profiling now of what we expect a serial killer to be. And could even be a very likable individual. Oh, like comes into the courtroom and everybody's like, ah, are. there's I no way I'm convicted. This guy yeah. tells great jokes. No, yeah. And I don't know what our, like our obsession, I think. So when silence of the lambs came out in the eighties, um, Harris did a fantastic job. It's a great book. It was a big hit movie all of that, but it came out of the work the FBI did um, and Robert Ressler did, like profiling these serial killers. And I think as a society, we just kind of got our imaginations captured by this notion. And then there was a kind of explosion of serial killers in the 80s and 90s. Um, then they theorized different reasons why, but mostly because we were connecting these victims for the first time ever. Like in the past, you kill a body in one county and you kill somebody in another county, they never connect those crimes. Like it's still difficult to connect those crimes today. Yeah. Um, so what's difficult about the torso killer and it, and the killer was never found um, officially, although some people believe that Francis Sweeney was, you know, put into a mental hospital and never prosecuted because he was the nephew of a congressman. Um but the reason why they were not able to find this killer is because they didn't even know where to look. They didn't have an idea of an H.H. Holmes. Like H.H. Holmes at the turn of the century, killing all those women at the Chicago World's Fair, nobody suspected him. He was a doctor. Like or he owned a hotel. He was a businessman. He had some medical training. Like he was considered respectable. And, and he was very charismatic. And yes. And he yeah. was likable. Now, you would think that they would have learned something from him. But again, it wasn't until the 1970s that the FBI actually said, and they were pariahs at the FBI. Like when they first suggested we should study these serial killers and learn how they think, nobody wanted to fund it. It was considered a terrible no. idea. 
Like how dare you even treat them as people with brains? These are madmen. We don't want to know them. We don't want to learn from them. We don't want anything to do with them. We just want to lock them up. There's well, no value. Right. There's nothing to learn by studying them. So it was very difficult, even in the seventies to like learn about serial killers. But at the time of the torso killer, there was no, um, no way to identify. So they were rounding up all the drug addicts. They were rounding up all the transvestites. They were rounding, rounding up anybody that was weird or crazy. Um, and with absolutely no luck, no leads. Of course, they also didn't really know how to do any kind of crime scene containment. Like they had kids walking through the crime scene. Like they, they didn't know what they were doing um, by today's standards as far as evidence collection and, and really knowing how to catch this killer. But I became obsessed because there's just enough information about the victims um, to think you can start finding connections. Um, several, a couple of the victims, Flo Perillo knew one of the other victims and um, they all hung out at a bar near the Central Avenue District, the Red Light District of Cleveland. Like there was. Well, you had Cleveland at that time was definitely like a part where you had a lot of trains coming through, which was a big part of mm -hmm. what they couldn't figure out. Is this person coming off of trains? Right. You had what was called Hoovervilles, which were areas where a lot of homeless people were at because you were coming in, depre in depression times where a yeah, lot of people didn't depression. have money. And what's now the west side of the flats was, I think, considered the Roaring Third or something along those lines. I can't remember the exact name of it, but you had a lot of like what you would call degenerate type people hanging out there. Yeah. And they had all sorts of suspects. And like when they had a suspect, normally it was like, like I remember one of the people being questioned, I read it read about it in this uh, book called Torso by Stephen Nichol. Like one of the people they really thought was doing it <laughs> was this guy that they knew he could not get off unless he cut the head of a chicken off with right. prostitutes. Oh, okay. Well, that'll do it. So, so instantly, instantly he, yeah. he's going to be named. You know what I mean? Like they're like, yeah. we got to look into this guy. Well, because and the he, victims were decapitated, some of them. So yes. they were yeah. like, well, he likes cutting the heads off chickens, so he must like to cut off the heads off other things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just such a, there's so many mysteries behind these murders because it's weird how a lot of the victims, nobody could ever identify. I mean, yep. Cleveland had, I don't know if the world's fair was going on here at that time. There, there was something, there was a major event in Cleveland and they made these death masks it was that a you lake can area, now find. Yeah, yeah. It was a Lake Erie exposition. So it was like this big fair of new inventions okay. and things. And yes, and they made the death mask of the two, for the first two victims. And thousands of people saw those death masks. Thousands upon thousands. You can still look at them at the Cleveland Police Museum. They're still there. Yes. Um, oh, that's crazy. And people would bring their children through. Can you imagine taking your children, like little toddlers, to see the plaster face the, the faces of this dead unidentified people and there were different theories as to why no one would identify the victims like if it was because the families were embarrassed or would be shamed because they were killed under such sordid circumstances or scared or, maybe 
Well, and sometimes it was the 30s and you had like homosexuality going on where Mm -hmm. like um, some of the victims were known to be homosexual or bisexual, but they were still like, nobody knew if they wanted that out. You know what I mean? And like they were killed. And like, I think one of them was in Rocky River or something close to that uh, that was killed or Lakewood or something at that time. On the and, train tracks uh, on the west side. And some yeah. people some people don't agree that all 13 victims were fit the same uh, MO. And one thing that you'll find when you look at um, police departments, even today, if you can find a way to, to ascribe, like, to get rid of an unsolved murder from your books, like, if you can find a way to, like, say, oh, this must have been such yeah. such, so it's no longer my problem. It's part, it's part of the big task force. Now, Elliot Ness is going to find this killer. So, yeah. You know, that, that, that West side killing didn't necessarily fit the, the profile, but then some people estimate that up to 50 different victims, including up to 1953, like were found um, in the Cleveland area that could have been the torso killer. Like wow. there, there's a lot of disagreement about what the real body count was if it was really one killer um and so this part of cleveland lore because it's um our most infamous unsolved murder it remains unsolved to this day um it does come up in all your halloween tours and they do these tours so you know you you drive you ride down the rta tracks from shaker square to downtown and you're going through kingsbury run which is a dried creek bed where several bodies were found. Um, and you'll get a sense of, and I would go down there for my research and just kind of listen to the wind blowing down the tracks and the sense of isolation. Um, the first two bodies found not far from 79th Street. And just, you get a sense of how creepy and alone it was. I also went down by the river where several bodies were found in the shanty towns where um, where the homeless and the dis- disenfranchised were living, uh, the whole thing just really caught my imagination. I researched uh, the crimes for about eight months and read everything I could find on it. I went to the old archives um, at Cleveland State and at the county and looked through some of the original records. Um, just you know, you become like that comic, you know, like that stereotypical obsessed person with the serial killer photos on your wall (laughs) I was deep down the rabbit hole but I what bothered me about the story why why I stuck with it was I felt like the narrative was wrong and every book and I read several about the killings um focused on the police they focused on Elliot Ness they focused on who the killer might be but nobody seemed to care who the victims were and out of the 13, only three were ever identified. And one of those identifications is even shaky at best. And, and the fact that these people were killed um, really bothered me. And that's something that bothers me about crime fiction in general uh, as a genre is um, how traditional crime fiction kind of treats the victims. Like Agatha Christie doesn't spend much time making you care about the person that got killed. It's all about the intrigue of which country house guest did it and why they had a vendetta against this, this person. 
but I, I just, I wanted to tell a story of a serial killer a little bit different. I wanted to talk about the victims, how they knew each other. I wanted to write a character that knew the victims in the 1930s, who was a prostitute kind of on the run herself. Um, so and I had some different theories about, you know, who the killer might be. Um, at the time, there was a large Nazi uh, faction in Cleveland. Anti-union sentiment was huge. Fear of communism was on the rise, which meant fear of the poor was on the rise. Um, there were a lot of things happening at the same time as these killings. Like you read the front page of the newspapers. So I would get the newspaper where the torso killer had struck and was being reported. And I read all the headlines on the front page to hear about the Pinkertons coming to break up a union strike and all of the, all of the unrest in the factories, um, all of the bloodshed down by the river, like everything that was going on, uh, in Cleveland on a larger scale, um, was interesting to me. And I hadn't really seen it put into context of this killer. And then the idea that, um, the killing stopped, you know, that the, the traditionally there's 13 victims. It all stops in 1939. Elliot Ness finds a body in the sewer pipe outside his office. And it's the final coup d'etat to ruin Elliot Ness. He becomes an alcoholic. His career's in the toilet. Um, and he's ruined. And unfortunately, he dies broke. <laughs> like yes, just... all that stuff. You know, his whole this this whole torso killer thing. He got sucked into it. And, but Elliot Ness didn't interest me so much as a writer myself because so much has been written about him. Yeah. Um, but what and he wasn't there. even a detective on the case. No, just so he was people just... know he was not a detective on that case. He was, he was just safety officer. He was in charge yeah. of installing traffic lights, yeah. like. He did a lot of great things in Cleveland. He gets no credit for, but because he was famous when he came here, people demanded that he find this killer and he decided that he would do it. And then he ended up, he kidnapped a guy. Like he broke the law. He burned down the, 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 the shanties. He like did illegal searches of all these tenement houses around Cleveland. Like he went nuts trying to find this killer and definitely bent the law and broke the law. Um, that is so crazy. Trying to find it. But what bothered me about it was like, I didn't think the killing stopped. I mean, you look at some of the, the bodies that were found in the 40s and after the official end of the Torso Killer. Um, I was like, well, what if the killings never stopped? And I wanted to kind of look at that as well. So that's where the unclaimed victim came from. It was like, how did how did the real story get missed by the newspapers? You know, like what, what wasn't told. And so that, that was what I was trying to do in the story. And it was really an interesting one to write. It was, it was pretty dark. I mean, it's one of my darker books. Um, but I, I did have a good time researching these missionaries and the city of Cleveland through these, uh, this really difficult time. Very cool. Yeah. I, we could probably go on about the torso murders all night because it's yeah. such an interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but we probably need to transition into your newest book that's been released, No One's Home. came out in 2019. takes place in Shaker Heights. But this is a little more of a different story for you. I know that... Uh, I mean... What what would you like to bring up about No One's Home? I, I, I just recently purchased it. I know that this takes place in Shaker Heights. It's more of like a a ghost story, kind of takes place from the house's perspective. Like would 
what would you like to add to that? Well, No One's Home um, is my kind of homage or love letter to Shirley Jackson. I love The Haunting of Hill House. I love Haunted House Stories altogether. Um, and I Which was it. also a Netflix series, if anybody wants to oh, know. Yeah. That, yeah. that was a big Netflix show, The Haunting of Hill House. So. Haunting of Hill House is a very famous, very famous uh, book. And yes, it was a very popular series for a minute there. Um, yeah. But growing up on horror movies and horror books and the gothic haunted house story and living in Shaker Heights for the last 15 years, um, I live in a house that's 100 years old. I live in a house that I've found things buried in the walls. I've found things written on the walls and hidden places. I've found um, all kinds of little artifacts of history. And as an engineer. This was um, in real life you found this? Yeah. And oh. As an engineer, I also ran my own business for a few years while I was writing The Dead Key, and I did kitchens and baths and other renovations, and so I tore apart, I specialized in hundred, you know, in historic homes in the inner rings of Cleveland, so Cleveland Heights, Shaker Heights, and Lakewood, and um, so I had the opportunity to tear apart a couple old houses, including a 7,000 square foot mansion in Cleveland Heights, um, that I worked on for almost a year and found all kinds of bizarro things. Like I found old children's shoes buried in walls. I found, oh my gosh. I found newspapers. I found all kinds of things that, um, that tell a story. And what I find intriguing about a house like mine, that's a hundred years old is the idea that it's seen you know, five or six families live there. And, and it's, when my house was built, women could not vote. Uh, when my house was built, indoor plumbing was new. When my house was built, um, people still had horses and carriage houses. Um, so if you think about that kind of history, uh, I find it very interesting. But Shaker Heights itself also has a very interesting and haunted past where the Shakers, this, um, kind of a cult or commune of, of uh, religious followers settled in Shaker Heights, bought the farmland up and converted one of the farmers. And they actually believed that they could talk to the dead, that they could speak to ghosts. And they would go into these fugue states and dance and shake. And that's how they got their name, the Shaking Quakers, the Shakers. But they would go into these trances and they believed that they were talking to the dead. They thought that Jesus came and stayed with them for a while. They thought that their founder, um, Anne, gosh, I'm trying to blank out Anne's last name, um, who died a hundred years ago, a hundred years prior, had, had was speaking to them regularly. They, like the Mormons, they were writing their own new Bible. Like they were, um, I don't know if they were religious zealots, but they were definitely going through this mystical phase right around the time that Shaker Heights started um, their their commune declined and then Shaker Heights was built on top of their lands on top of their graveyards actually this is so interesting to me it almost it's cultish in a way to, to hear that and I have never known that before so this is very interesting to, oh. to know that about Shaker Heights I did not know that yeah well, we think of the shakers, we think of shaker cabinets, they made lovely brooms, they were no like hands to work and hearts to God was their motto. They're kind of viewed 
in general as like pilgrims, but they were, um, they were communal livers. They did not have their own children live with them very much like a lot of other cults that you hear about around the centuries. Like they, they lived in communal homes where you weren't allowed to be too attached to your own children. They weren't allowed to own property. They, oh my um, gosh. Yeah. I did not know this. So this crazy to me. Yeah. Wow. But they were also pacifists. There's some connections between the Shakers and the Underground Railroad, just like through Shaker Heights, there was um, a branch of the Underground Railroad that went up Chagrin Boulevard. So there's all this history. And then you build these, in many cases, mansions, these large, large homes, um, these big monuments to industrialization, to capitalism, to everything the Shakers did not stand for you know, the exact opposite, like all this materialism and wealth. And then you have this upstairs, downstairs dynamic, like you were talking about at Rockefeller's home, where my house has servants quarters and my house is not big. Like I have a 2000 square foot home, but the entire third floor was for the nanny or the cook. Um, And my house is not quite big enough for a back staircase, but most of my neighbors have a back staircase for the servants. And this idea of um, this wealth disparity, these great big houses, and then you fast forward to today and how tiny our families have become. And you have these families with one or two kids living in a 7,000 square foot home with seven bedrooms. Which is great. Uh, Yeah. And so I find Shaker to be um, haunted in so many different ways. And I wanted to tell a story that, span the generations. I, I wanted to talk about this house's life, not just the families that lived in it, but what the house had been through and the different people that had lived there. And um, and it just so happens that Shaker does have a couple terrible murders in its past. And so I used a couple real murders as a backdrop for um, some of the story I wanted to tell. And that's um, essentially where no one's home came from. So it's really the house in no one's home doesn't actually exist, but the street it lives on does. And the house itself in the story is built out of pieces of houses that I've worked on or my house that I live in. And um, it was the first time I was able to put blueprints into a book. So that was really fun. Like you open the book and you can actually see a diagram of the house. And um, it's not, it's told from the house's point of view in that you know everything the house knows, but the house doesn't talk to you. Like it doesn't have a voice like that, but the entire story takes place inside the house and you get to see, I get to tell the story of a couple different families that live there and things that happen. Cool. That, it's really cool. And, and, and now that we're in October, I do think we need to kind of oh, go yeah. into the fact that, so I will be telling ghost stories at the Shaker Historical Society. Um, I think on the 19th of October, they're having oh, a I love that. And I'll actually be, ta- I'll be reading a section of the book that got cut out um, from uh, about the Shakers. And, but the sh- I did a lot of research at the Shaker Historical Society. I went through like the archives and actual drawings and writings of, um, of the Shakers. And they joke around there at the Shaker Historical Society that they must've been drinking some pretty strong mushroom tea. <laughs> Cause they actually believed that there was a place in Shaker Heights, right at the corner of Shaker and Lee Shaker Boulevard and Lee road 
where um, they called it the Holy Jehovah Square, where you could speak to the dead. I didn't know that. I've never heard that. I gosh, it's not well, common knowledge, but that's that's what they believed. Well, that's me being a West Sider too. Um, <laughs> West Siders and East Siders, we have totally different, yeah. you know, lore. But a different world. That, yeah, I did not. I did not know that. Um, well, D, before we uh, kind of close here, can you talk anything about like? Uh, I know you do some teaching and and or slash workshops. Um, what's coming up as far as that's concerned for you? Uh, well, this month I'm teaching a, a class with Willoughby Hills Library on building suspense. And um, that is going on for the next four weeks. Tomorrow is week three. And I think if you go on the Willoughby East Lake Library website, you can find a link. Um, I also have a link on my Facebook page. Uh, DM Pulley Author is my page. Um, and then for Literary Cleveland, which I highly recommend to any um, writers out there, Literary Cleveland is a nonprofit that puts on free and affordable workshops and classes. They do a, a yearly free writers conference called the Incubator. And I, I've taught at that conference, um, I think, for seven years now. Uh, going on seven years and it's the biggest free writers conference one of the biggest in the country and it's held at the cleveland public library it just happened in september but throughout the year literary cleveland puts on classes and it's a great place for writers to learn and hear other writers talk but also to network and meet each other so i do recommend any writers out there that are toiling in the trenches by themselves to um, join Literary Cleveland or check out some of their events so that they have a chance to connect with other writers. Um, so that's what's happening, uh, I think, for the rest of this year. And as far as what else I'm working on, um, I have uh, an anthology coming out. I'm in an anthology called Cleveland Noir, which is part of a series. Um, the, the publisher has done Boston Noir, New York Noir. They've done a lot of major cities um but i have a story in cleveland noir that's coming out in august of next year along with paula mclean who is a new york times best-selling author of the paris wife and several other great books her latest mystery when all the stars go dark is a fabulous crime book um three umergar is also published in that book um she's award-winning world-renowned beautiful writer um, of a book called Space Between Us and, and several other fabulous books. Um, so I'm a little intimidated to be in such lofty company. Um, I've, my <laughs> friend, I've got friends in the anthology as well. Um, there's Suzanne Patrone and Abby Vandiver. It's a collection of stories told from Cleveland's history and in and around Cleveland, uh, focusing on Cleveland's noir, dark, seedy, crime-ridden, you know, Sam Spade, uh, aside so if you if you like crime stories if you like dark stories if you like noir all the good stuff. Love, yes it's going to be all about cleveland west side east side downtown those those are perfect um now where can we find you i know you're on instagram facebook and twitter uh and you have a website which you mentioned um is it just dm pulley for all those yeah, uh, you can find me um, DM Pulley on Instagram, DM Pulley author, I think, in uh, Twitter and Facebook. And my website is dmpulley.com. And there's links to all that there. Okay. And then if 
we decide, hey, we're going to purchase some books. I want to purchase some DM Pulley books. Where do I go? I highly recommend checking out your local bookstores first. Um, I'm particularly partial to Max Bax and Coventry, Loganberry Books on Larchmere. Um, I think there is, oh God, on the West Side, there's a bookstore in Tremont. What's it called? I've done something there before. Um, oh God, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, but I, I do recommend checking out your local bookstores first. There's also bookshop, I think, .org. But if you go to my website, you'll find links to different booksellers. I mean, obviously there's Amazon, but if you want to spread the love to small business owners and... Um, especially in Cleveland, I agree with you. Especially in Cleveland, yes. Please reach out to your local bookstores. Fireside Books and, um, oh God, The Learned Owl in Hudson, Fireside in Chagrin Falls and... I wish I knew more of the local bookstores. Like I said, there's a bookstore in, in Tremont that I just can't think of the name right now. Um, but please check out your local bookstores. I agree. I agree. And, and uh, as we close here, Dave, I'm going to ask you first, what did you take anything away from today's interview? What, what did you learn today? Uh, of course I did. I learned something new every time. This time <laughs> I learned that the more charming you are, the more likely you are to be a serial killer. <laughs> and I don't trust either of you two at this point yeah. uh, because you're way too charming. And I know you have shoes and bodies buried in your walls and all that creepy, weird stuff now. So that's what I learned. Well, I learned that uh, if I had to take one thing away, I, I learned that old buildings I have a new fear now that pieces of them are going to fall down and hit me and kill me <laughs> or maim me. Uh, well, I'm amazed it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely amazed that it has not happened yet. And, uh, and I am definitely have a new phobia. Anything away from today, or I know you did most of the teaching, so I won't be upset if you didn't learn anything, but I will ask. Well, I've always wanted to go into the Sherwin Williams Castle down, <laughs> and that was really fun because I've driven past there it a few times. We used to have season tickets, the you know the Indians before they were the Guardians, and we would go down there. And I would just every time I walked by or drove by, I mean, I lived in Tremont, I would just salivate over that building. I wanted to break in so many times, and to ease everyone's fears, Cleveland did pass a law and ordinance um, about five years ago that requires all its buildings be inspected on a regular cycle so that Thank much lower God. chance of yes. any pieces or parts falling into the street. And most major cities have passed these laws as well. Oh, well, good. I, I have an irrational fear of being killed by a cement gargoyle. So that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> well, yeah, breathe easy. I did get a chance to go up on outside the Cleveland Renaissance and secure the angels their elbows were loose um got over a decade ago and i know they've been on a lot of work on that facade since but it was it was a lot of fun going up and, and making sure that no no angel fell in the street oh that is great um well with that being said everyone thank you so much for uh sticking with us here and uh we will see you on the next episode of Cleveland Twill. and until then have a drink on us. Thank you so much, Cleveland.